This is Crime Beat, brought to you by AdTaxi. How effective is your digital advertising? As a recognized leader, AdTaxi offers customized solutions to drive consumer traffic to your website, generate high-value leads, and increase revenue. To learn more, visit AdTaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. If you were drunk and you were asked to draw a straight line on a map between Pittsburgh and Cleveland, but you couldn't see straight because you just finished your 11th Iron City beer and your line bowed a little bit to the north, that line would go through Youngstown. It's an hour northwest of Pittsburgh and just more than an hour southeast of Cleveland. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about Youngstown, an industrial city in northeast Ohio where the lifeblood is steel. The last line of the song is particularly uplifting. When I die, I don't want no part of heaven. I would not do heaven's work well. I pray the devil comes and takes me to stand in the fiery furnaces of hell. If you were a young man in Youngstown in the 1950s and 60s, and you didn't want to work in the fiery furnaces of hell, you probably considered a life of crime. Youngstown in those days had three nicknames. Listen to Mahoning County historian Alan May explain. The nickname Crime Town USA was actually given by a writer from the Saturday Evening Post. And the article came out about several months after the uh, bombing of the uh, Charlie Cavallaro, which took the life of his uh, uh, young son, Tommy, and maimed uh, his other son, uh, Charlie Jr. And the title of the article was Crime Town USA. Uh, Prior to that, with all the uh, activity and bombings that took place, in Youngstown during the 50s and early 60s. It also had the nickname of uh, Bomb Town USA and Murder Town. Sounds like a lovely place. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This podcast is going to cover the half-century history of the top U.S. bank burglary of all time. From the moment it was just a twinkle in the eye of a master thief to the long weekend in March of 1972 when the crew went after Nixon's money to the investigation in which only one of the thieves got away to the night this story will appear on the big screen as a Hollywood movie. 
If you were a young man in Youngstown, you probably looked up to Emil Dinzio, which wasn't the easiest thing to do. In his prime, Dinzio was 5 foot 6, 140 pounds, and almost tiny enough to fit into the keyhole of a bank's front door. Raised by Italian immigrants, Dinzio became a folk hero in Youngstown. He and his brother James started robbing banks as teenagers before he evolved into burglary. Here is Emil's daughter, Melissa, on WOCA Radio in 2014, explaining her father's humble beginnings. You'll hear host Larry Whitler and Robin McBlain in the middle of this clip. He did start out, as you mentioned, when he was 16 years old, he started out as a bank robber. Um, and it was with his brother James. Um, one of the reasons that he switched from, or they switched from robbery to burglary is that they did not like scaring people. There's one story that has come down through our family and statute of limitations is way up, so <laughs> way long over, so I'm free to talk about it. Um, but during one of the bank robberies, um, in his earlier life, if we, on the way out, they accidentally, or my father accidentally stepped on a lady's dress. He, of course, you know, they say get down on the floor, and he accidentally stepped on a lady's dress, and he threw her $100 from the bank and told her to buy a new one. What was, what was his father like? I mean, did, what, did, was this handed down from anywhere? No. His father was the straightest arrow. He was from Italy. Um... He came over, oh, I don't know the exact year, but the early 1900s, and um, he loved his children unconditionally. We're a very tight family, but he did not like what his children did for a living. I bet not. And he would, he would tell them, you boys are going to get yourselves in some trouble. Mm -hmm. Not bad. Emil Dinzio didn't take his father's advice. He had risen from the ranks of small-time thief to big-time bank buster the American dream, Youngstown style. Dinzio was the leader of a loose-knit gang of about a hundred bad guys. Safe crackers, grifters, loan sharks, bag men, cat burglars, and other nefarious characters. Of his many admirers, Dinzio's nephew, Harry Barber, may have been his biggest. Uncle Emil called Harry Ace. How's it going, Ace? In Youngstown, you were somebody if Emil Dinzio called you Ace. One day, Emil and Harry were walking through a Sears department store when Emil noticed an alarm system screwed into the wall. We just got BSing one day and said, I bet you can't take that alarm system off of Sears to see how it worked. Well, I pried it off when the store was open in the daytime, and then we took it and found out it was a $2 battery that made it operate. As you might expect, Dinzio was infatuated with alarms. Once he had the alarm beat, the money was all his. One time, Harry stole an alarm from a jewelry store, and the damn thing wouldn't turn off. I remember Harry asking me if I'd ever driven in a car with an alarm going off in the back seat. I couldn't say that I had. I've got to tell you about Harry. He was raised in Boardman, Ohio, just outside Youngstown. His mother, Viola, was Emil's sister. Viola had arthritis and needed more warmth. So she moved the family to Southern California in 1956. Viola, her husband Ken, and her two boys, Harry and Ronnie. They lived in Southgate. Harry dreamed of being Steve McQueen. If you don't know Steve McQueen, Google him. He's not the director of 12 Years a Slave. He's the older one, from the 1970s. The Steve McQueen I'm talking about is dead now. 
but there's still a certain segment of society who admires his style. Steve McQueen might have been the coolest dude on earth. He was an actor, he wore thin ties and skinny pants and sunglasses, and he married Ally McGraw, who was one of the most popular women in Hollywood. When he was a kid, they called him a troubled youth, and he attended the Boys' Republic, a school in Chino Hills. He graduated in 1946 and grew up to be more successful than anyone ever thought he could be. Boys' Republic still hosts the Steve McQueen Car Show every June. McQueen's breakout role came in the campy horror movie The Blob in 1958. He was in The Great St. Louis Bank Robbery in 1959, just about the time teenage Harry Barber was launching his criminal career. Two roles made him a household name. In Bullet, McQueen plays a cop in a battle against the mob. In one of the most famous and inspiring scenes, McQueen drives a 1968 Ford Mustang 390 GT through the streets of San Francisco, outdueling a hitman in a 1968 Dodge Charger. In The Getaway, McQueen plays a bank robber who falls in love with McGraw and has a cool shootout in a 1969 Chevy Impala. With a hero like that, how could Harry Barber be anything other than a felon? Harry went to Southgate High School and worked part-time in a gas station. He mowed some lawns. He wasn't remarkable in any way until he learned how to drive. He had a 1952 Chevy Deluxe with an inline-six blue flame engine. To say that Harry Barber liked to drive fast would be a little like saying a cheetah liked to hunt. Speed came naturally. He got 41 speeding tickets in one year. That has to be some kind of record. The last time the judge says, you're not driving anymore, and he tore up my license. Harry's mother shipped him off to live with his grandmother in Poland, Ohio, just across the Mahoning River from Youngstown. He got a job working for his uncle, Emil. Outside of being a criminal mastermind, Emil owned vending machines. Harry would load and unload those machines. Harry often thought about the life he left behind in California. He missed his little brother, Ronnie. Harry's younger brother, Ronnie, was taller and skinnier. While Harry was launching a life of crime, Ronnie was joining the Air Force and going to Vietnam. Though he was eligible for the draft, Harry never went to Vietnam. He believes his uncle Emil made some phone calls behind the scenes to keep him in Ohio. Today, if you want to make Harry Barber cry, ask him about his little brother. Ronnie Barber was an airman. In February of 1967, Ronnie was awarded the Bronze Star for his heroic work repairing airplanes during a firefight with the Viet Cong. When Ronnie got home from the war, the Southgate Daily Signal newspaper did an interview with him. He said his unit, the 20th Task Force, took mortar fire several times during his 129 days at Quezon. I know I'm a Springsteen nut, but it's as if Bruce wrote about these guys long before I ever got the chance. I think of the words from Born in the USA. I had a brother at Quezon, fighting off the Viet Cong. They're still there. He's all gone. Ronnie came home a war hero, but that's not the story Harry tells about his brother. The story Harry tells is a tragic one. Ronnie, he said, was exposed to toxic material during the war, and he was never the same. My brother was a mess. He had ancient orange. He had a lot of things wrong with him. The United States Department of Veterans Affairs has admitted during the Vietnam War to using 19 million gallons of tactical herbicides that were stored in 55-gallon drums marked with orange stripes. That's where the name came from. It wasn't until 1991 that the VA admitted the link between diseases and Agent Orange exposure. In that year, they started helping veterans who had been exposed. I interviewed Veronica Barber, Ronnie's daughter. 
She's an office manager in Lake Elsinore and a veteran of the Army National Guard. She said her dad kept trying to prove his case to the Veterans Administration. Do you think the breathing problems were a result of his service in Vietnam? Had to have been. My dad smoked maybe 10 years of his life. Uh-huh. Maybe. Right. Nobody gets all of that from smoking for 10 years. He would be in the hospital twice a year for pneumonia, and he was always at the VA. But they never, um, they never approved his Agent Orange poisoning case. He was convinced that he had been poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. And but, but never confirmed on the other side. No, they would never. I mean, you know, their confirmation of those cases was, you know, very little right. for Agent Orange back then. They nobody wanted to admit that. Veronica said her dad had a dream for his life. He wanted to take the parts from two Volkswagen Bugs and convert them into a limousine. Remember, he was an airplane mechanic during the war. When he died in 2000, he had two Bugs on blocks in his front yard. Harry, on the other hand, always drove a split-top Corvette. Harry was just always like the cool guy. Steve McQueen. You know, he was like Joe Cool. And I'm sure he got that from Amal. Because... Grandma was nowhere near that, and Grandpa was straight-laced as they come. So um, he had to have got that from the uncles. He, Uncle Harry definitely, um, he always had a, like a bigger-than-life personality. Just kind of like, just I mean, just so cool. He's a great guy. How is he different than Ron? Dad is mellow. Harry would have traveled the world and had a hot blonde on each arm. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Orange County Register, we'll keep City Hall honest, corporations accountable, and report on local sports, events, and issues in your community, accurately and objectively. And that's worth paying for. To subscribe, call 1-877-469-6133. That's 1-877-469-6133. Number 10 on our list of bank heist movies is The Bank Job with Jason Statham. On our list of 12, this movie is most like the United California bank heist. It's a burglary, not a robbery. I think it's the only burglary on our list. It's London, 1971. A team of thieves burrows into a bank vault. They bust open safe deposit boxes. They get a bunch of money, and they think they've outsmarted everyone. Then all hell breaks loose when they find pictures of Great Britain's Princess Margaret in compromising situations. And when you watch this one, pay close attention to the bank employee in charge of admitting people into the vault. That's Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. Number nine is The Town. Ben Affleck directs and stars as a nice guy thief with a brutal best friend played by Jeremy Renner. They knock over banks until Affleck falls in love with one of the bank managers. Then they try to rob Fenway Park. I know, it's a wild idea. You've got to see it to believe it. In the first three bank robbery movies I watched in my 25-hour binge, there's one consistent theme. Bank robbery doesn't pay for most of the people involved. In Point Break, Set It Off, and The Town, each robbery crew consists of four people. Nine of those 12 robbers involved are dead by the end of each movie. And one more may be dead, but you don't really know. I'll say it again. Maybe they should have tried burglary. In the 1950s and 60s, Emil Dinzio's crew was bumping off banks all over America. 
One FBI agent I talked to said Dinzio's crew probably committed 30 heists and amassed $20 million in cash and jewelry before they went to California in 1972. Emil was developing a reputation in his hometown as a nice guy thief. He once helped out a stripper who was down on her luck by paying her heating bill. Harry said when they broke into night drops, if they saw money that had been delivered by a church, they wouldn't take it. Melissa Dinzio heard those same stories. Anything that was deposited by a church got left. Oh, really? Oh, take everything else. And my mother started laughing when they told her that, and my Uncle James jumped all over and said, What's wrong with you? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And You'd... my mother tried to explain exactly. That's one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> The local cops knew Emil was involved in crimes, but he rarely left any evidence behind. The cops couldn't make any charges stick. In 1958, Emil fell in love with a girl everyone called Lynn. Linda Mulligan went to the Rayan School, a high school in Youngstown, where she was a majorette. She grew up to become a professional ballroom dancer and later a dance instructor. One day in 1958, Lynn was teaching a dance class at the Arthur Murray studio. Emil Dinzio walked right in and introduced himself. She was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Emil and Lynn were married February 24, 1968. Their family lived in Boardman, and they were known as a classy couple. The best house, the best clothes, the best cars. Emil and Lynn had three daughters, Amy, Deborah, and Melissa. Melissa Dinzio once told me her father implanted values in his daughters. Quote, Anytime we were compassionate about other people, we know we got that from our dad. He's very family-oriented. Unquote. I can remember my mother saying multiple times throughout my life to my father, Emil, how much money is enough? She would always tell us because we were... You know, we loved our daddy and all of that, and she and we knew what daddy uh, did for uh. a living. And uh, you know, I can't imagine trusting a small child with that information, but we knew we better keep our mouths shut. <laughs> My mother would always tell us, you know, of course your father's going back to prison. It's the law of averages. You can't do the same thing constantly and not get caught for it. And she would always tell us, when the feds want you, they get you. In the winter of 1971, Emil Dinzio heard about President Nixon stashing money in a bank in Southern California. Word got to my father, who was already known in um, his circles as being the best bank burglar that there was, and the FBI knew it, you know, just could never prove anything against him because he was good. And, um, so the word got to my father through mob bosses and um, Teamsters leaders that Jimmy Hoffa wanted his $3 million back. And word got to my father about the shakedown of the dairy farmers and that $30 million was in, pre in, uh, was in President Nixon's safety deposit boxes in the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel, California. One night in the winter of 1972, Harry was unloading change from one of Emil's vending machines when he saw a note that said, See you tonight. The note was from Emil. It was a signal that a meeting was happening. Emil gathered some of the members of his crew at the home of Harry's grandmother. 
Other men would be added later, but for this meeting, his crew also happened to be his family. Amel's brother James was there. Harry said he liked James because he wasn't as uptight as Amel. James and Harry used to go out drinking together when they weren't pulling bank jobs. FBI agent Frank Calley had a different way to describe the Dinzio brothers. Amel was the brains and James was the asshole type. Amel and James were inseparable. The love between them was just... Um, actually, we grew up kind of jealous of Uncle James because everything... Uh, we couldn't go on a on an outing as a family unless my father called James and um, made sure that there was nothing James wanted to do that day. And James's children felt the same way about my father because James did the same thing in their lives. And um, But the older I got, though, I realized that it was truly something beautiful, that the, 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 the love and the um, respect and the relationship that the two of them had um, with each other. Emil's brother-in-law, Charles Albert Mulligan, was also at this meeting. Harry called him Chuck. Chuck Mulligan was a chronically unemployed hairstylist when he wasn't helping knock over banks. He had a pompadour hairdo and a penchant for alcohol. Harry didn't like him. He always loved to drink. You better have a good straight mind. You better have a good mind. If not, you better be fast on your feet. Now, Chuck fell asleep a few times, and he's cost us millions. Emil passed out plane tickets. Their destination? Los Angeles. On February 17, 1972, Emil and James Dinzio, Chuck Mulligan, and Harry Barber landed at LAX. They took a cab from the airport to San Carlos Avenue in Southgate, the home of the Barbers, Harry's parents. Because he was a nice guy, Emil also tipped the cab driver a hundred bucks. Everyone always said Emil was generous to a fault. It wasn't long before the first problem with the heist planning presented itself. The barber's house wasn't big enough to hold all the burglars and non-burglars, so the Dinzio crew made arrangements to split up. On February 18, 1972, Emil Dinzio and Chuck Mulligan checked into the Jubilee Motor Inn on Long Beach Boulevard in Linwood. The Jubilee was about 50 miles from Nixon's Millions, which was sitting at the United California Bank of Laguna Niguel. The Jubilee had two pools, 24-hour phone switchboard, kiddie waiting pool, nightclub, cocktail lounge, and a fine restaurant. At least that's what it said on the back of the postcard I found for the Jubilee Motor Inn. In reality, it was a dump. I also found a newspaper ad under adult entertainment for the Jubilee, which offered X-rated movies on color TV. The fact that the Jubilee was a dump helped the Dinzio crew more than they ever could have imagined. More on that later. In the winter of 1972, Emil and his crew were in Southern California for 15 days. The average temperature in Los Angeles in March of 1972 was 65 degrees. The average temperature in Youngstown was 34. Like the song, it never rained in Southern California while Emil was visiting. Those 15 days gave him plenty of time to case the bank. He wanted to see the inside of the bank. Where was the vault? What time did the banker go home? How many security guards? What kind of alarm system? He also wanted to watch the comings and goings of police outside the bank. What kind of police presence did Laguna Niguel have in 1972? Let me describe it in two words. Not much. The place wasn't yet a city, so it had no police force. 
Laguna Niguel was a bank burglar's dream. Uh, at the time, at the time, it just it was an unincorporated, very sleepy area. Uh, the, the strip mall, what they would call a strip mall today, it was, it was just a bank and a couple stores in there, not not much. Very affluent community, very quiet. There was almost no coverage. At the, I think, well, at that time, Orange County Sheriff's Office we had one full-time deputy assigned uh, to that area during the daytime, and at nighttime, the deputy had a split between Tustin area and South County. So they had basically one and a half deputies assigned to this whole area for 24-7. But basically, they had one and a half deputies assigned down here at the time. Uh, almost no aircraft at the time. You just didn't see a deputy sheriff. 1972 was a leap year, and the Dinzio crew took advantage of that extra day. On February 29th, Chuck bought a car in Long Beach using the fake name Jimmy Eldon Wright of Glendale. The car was a 1962 Oldsmobile Super 88, and that car was sweet. It had a four-barrel, ultra-high compression, 394, skyrocket V8 engine. Chuck fell in love with the car. Emil fell in love with the trunk. Emil hollowed out the trunk so lots of tools would fit inside. Here's the thing about Emil and cars. He had a rule. After pulling a bank job, you always torched the car. It didn't matter how beautifully that engine purred. If you worked for Emil Dinzio, you always torched the car. Except once. Why didn't you torch the car? It's the first one we've never torched. Right, because you always torch the car, right? Every, that everyone. Rule. That's the rule. Everyone. You use the car, you torch the car. It wasn't my decision. On March 5th, James Dinzio put a thousand bucks down payment on a boat in Downey. The boat, strangely enough, would play a key role in what they were planning. Remember that boat. On March 7th, Harry found the perfect place for the entire crew to stay. It was a two-bedroom condo in the West Nine Villas in Laguna Niguel. The rear of the condo opened up to the fairway of the El Niguel golf course. The place had shag carpet and an automatic dishwasher. To guys from Youngstown, it looked like a place movie stars might live. Here's what the promotional material for the West Nine Villas says. Located in the heart of Laguna Niguel, the Niguel Villas West Nine Complex, built in 1971, comprise 161 two- and three-bedroom condominiums, ranging in size from 1,000 to 1,300 square feet. Established, lush landscaping surrounds the Spanish-tiled roofs and stuccoed structures. The community parallels the El Niguel Country Club's private golf course with beautiful lakes, birds, trees, and foliage allowing homeowners to enjoy great views from their spacious patio or balcony. Niguel Villas is bordered by affluent communities such as Laguna Beach, Dana Point, and Monarch Beach. There are beaches, parks, golf courses, and world-class resorts only minutes away. Additionally, you will enjoy the convenience of highways, shopping, restaurants, and markets. Come visit Niguel Villas, just one mile from the coast, where you can enjoy beautiful surroundings and relax in the cool breezes and ocean air. I found it in a newspaper. And then I went and looked, and they had a for rent sign on it. And I think I rented it for 60 or 90 days, I think. Right. But I rented it. And did you get it because you could walk to the bank? That was the only reason. Harry rented the place for three months at a rate of $300 per month. 
Most important, it was just more than a mile away from the United California Bank. A nice walk through the golf course. Everything was set. When Dinzio and his crew flew back to Ohio on March 8th, he must have thought this bank job was going to be a piece of cake. Think about it. Richard Nixon had the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, the IRS, the Secret Service, the Department of Justice, and the FBI at his disposal. And Emil thought beating the president would be a piece of cake. Back in Ohio, Dinzio added two outsiders to his crew. Charlie Brockles was the best alarm man in the Midwest. And Phil Christopher was a mob enforcer from Cleveland. If there was going to be any trouble, Phil Christopher would handle it. Christopher was connected to the Cleveland mob. In an interview with AmericanMafia.com, Christopher explained how he got involved with the United California bank heist. Quote, After a number of years and the burglaries of supermarkets, jewelry shops, post offices, liquor stores, and savings and loans, he said, I got a reputation for being an ace burglar and an alarm expert. Emil and James Dinzio, professional burglar brothers from Youngstown, heard of me and needed an extra guy in their crew. I came highly recommended by people in organized crime. After our first score together, Emil and James liked my work and invited me to come on the bank burglary in California. Unquote. On March 15, 1972, Emil and James Dinzio, Chuck Mulligan, Phil Christopher, and Harry Barber flew from Cleveland on Flight 73 to Los Angeles International Airport. Charlie Brockles had flown out the day before. Here's the thing I always thought was weird. They used their real names. That is the definition of hubris. I asked Harry about it. He said they didn't care. What did they have to be afraid of? They're going to steal money Nixon stole. When the job was done, nobody was going to be chasing them. He couldn't have been more wrong. With only two days before the heist, there were still some things to do. Each of the burglars had a job. Chuck Mulligan had to buy the tools they would use to bust into the bank. It was quite a shopping list. Hacksaws, acetylene torches, a motor, drill bits, copper wiring, sledgehammers, flashlights, walkie-talkies, gloves, ski masks, and explosives. My favorite item on the checklist was cayenne pepper. Emil's crews always carried cayenne pepper during their bank heists in case they encountered dogs. Cayenne pepper is a very effective dog repellent, I guess. Emil thought of everything. Emil insisted the crime they were about to pull would be done without any violence, but he wanted to get a shotgun just in case. Emil went to a pawn shop to buy a 12-gauge. He tried to pay with a check. The pawn shop wouldn't take the check because Emil used an out-of-state driver's license. Who among them had a California driver's license? You guessed it, Ronnie Barber. Harry still gets upset when he talks about Ronnie's involvement with this crime. The only thing Ronnie did is went out to uh, a secondhand store or pawn shop and got him a shotgun. That was his only involvement in anything, period. I'm not sure that's 100% true. I'll explain what I mean in an upcoming episode. Ronnie hadn't been home from Vietnam for very long. His mother helped him get a job at a bar called the Charleston in Southgate. Ronnie wasn't thinking about the bank heist. He was falling in love with another bartender named Vicky. She worked part-time at the bar and part-time as a registered nurse. They became friends. What else do you do when you're a single man but hang out at bars? <laughs> with your brother and all your friends. They were hanging out and then like family came into town and so she didn't see my dad for like two, three weeks which, looking back now, was the time of the heist. She had no idea. 
Emil bought a shortwave radio to monitor police activity. He bought walkie-talkies so the thieves could communicate with each other. He put Harry in charge of the communications. On the morning of Friday, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, the crew took their load of tools and hid them in the bushes near the bank. Emil wanted the tools there waiting for them when they arrived for the heist. They waited for the bank to close. They waited for the security guard to go home. They waited for the darkness. And then they waited some more. Do you remember the great St. Patrick's Day bank job of 1972? Anyone? You probably don't because it never happened. During the day, a jogger running along Crown Valley Parkway noticed a bunch of tools in the bushes. He called the cops. Now, I'm not saying the Orange County Sheriff's Department made a mistake, but they confiscated hacksaws, sledgehammers, drill bits, torches, and dynamite from the bushes just a couple of hundred yards from the United California Bank. Did they assign extra security to that bank? Nope. They simply filled out a report and filed all the tools under found property. When Emil and his crew, wearing ski masks and cotton gloves, arrived to break into the bank, the tools were gone. Oops. Let me rephrase that. Major oops. We went to the bank the first time with a motor and some other stuff, and it all come up missing. So we had to reschedule everything. <laughs> now, whose idea was it to hide the stuff outside the bank? It was Emil's idea. It, it, it's better to hide it than to try to come across a parking lot loaded down with a bunch of shit. Right. Ladders and yeah. tools and... Dynamite, you name it, we had it. Dinzio's crew headed back to the condo. Instead of accepting this unfortunate circumstance as a sign from the bank burglary gods, Emil was undeterred. He decided they would wait a week and try it again. Chuck Mulligan went out with his bank burglar's shopping list and bought all new tools. Emil watched that bank for a week, and there was no new law enforcement activity. He felt confident that his plan wasn't dead, it was merely delayed. With a week to kill, Chuck Mulligan had time to think. And when you're planning the biggest bank heist of all time, you don't want to give Chuck Mulligan time to think. Chuck, as it turns out, had a buddy from Youngstown who lived in Southern California. He hadn't seen his buddy in 20 years. With a week to kill, what could be the harm in looking up an old friend? Next time on Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions, The Execution. All that stands between Emil Dinzio's crew and the president's secret stash are an alarm system, reinforced concrete, and 500 locked safe deposit boxes. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace. And Phoebe Judge on Criminal. <laughs>